Thank you very much, Brother Neville. I didn't expect you to be introducing me tonight. What a, an unexpected pleasure. Thanks, too, to Marist Youth Ministry. Brother Neville described me as the traditional speaker. It's only been five sessions. But uh, haven't we come a long way in five sessions? Because I can remember the first of the five sessions, uh, the anxiety was it was so warm in here, we'd have people expiring, but no one expired. And we've come to the point now where it's a bit chilly, isn't it? But, uh, but we don't have the Antarctic vortex that they have down south. There's at least that consolation. Now, uh, greetings also to those who are following the live stream, wherever you are in the warmth of your home, and greetings to all of those who will follow this presentation and this session later on when you, when you watch the watch on the net. It was an inspired coincidence that in the prayer that we just had, Brother Neville in fact was reading from the prophets. Because it's really there that I want to begin this fifth session with the prophets who are such a crucial part of the Bible in both Testaments. So unless we somehow get a handle on the prophets, there's going to be a great big black hole in our understanding of what the scripture is all about. So thank you very much, Marist Youth Ministry, for giving me the hook into the prophets. Living biblically in a secular age, I think everyone would say that that would mean for the church that the church has to be prophetic. It's one of those buzzwords. Everyone says yay to that. That it's a good thing to be prophetic and the church has to be prophetic. And Christian leaders like myself have to be prophetic. More so than ever perhaps in a, a clearly secularised environment. So we all agree, but the question is, and here I start... What do we mean, at least what does the Bible mean, when we use the word prophetic? Now, sometimes there's a highly politicised or ideologised sense of the word that being prophetic is a matter of take me to the nearest barricade, which I will then proceed to storm. That, uh, but that's not necessarily what the Bible means by prophetic. So who were the prophets in ancient Israel? Before I come to that question, I want to look at the, the prophets in the text of Scripture itself. There are various ways of describing them. They're not all of a piece, the prophets. Sometimes they talk about the writing prophets and the non-writing prophets. For instance, the first of the great prophets of ancient Israel was Elijah. But Elijah didn't write a word. We don't have a reading from the prophet Elijah. So there's Elijah and Elisha and various others who are considered to be the non-writing prophets 
And then we have the writing prophets who find themselves in the scripture. Some long books, some short books. But the fact of the matter is that none of them wrote. They all had teams of secretaries and scribes following them around and jotting down their oracles. Because the prophets were never just an isolated phenomenon, a kind of heroic individual uh, storming the barricades. No, they were part of guilds and, and each of the prophets would have had his team. There were, by the way, some prophetesses, not many, but some, none of them among the writing prophets. But Deborah is one and Hulda is another and so on. So when we talk about the writing prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, whom we heard from before, they didn't really write, they were recorded. It's like St Paul, to whom I'll come later this evening. St Paul almost never wrote, he dictated. The prophets spoke their oracles, which were believed to be divinely inspired, and you had scribes writing down furiously what they said, getting it down for posterity, and eventually those collections of oracles are edited and shaped and they find their way into what we call the Bible. Another way of describing the prophets is the major and the minor prophets. The major prophets are four and they're called major primarily because they're the longest books. We've got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Now Daniel is in there by deceit. He's not really a prophet at all. Daniel is one of the latest books in the Old Testament and he belongs to a kind of biblical literature that we call apocalyptic, which has its roots in prophetic tradition but is not classical prophetic utterance or literature. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel are certainly major, not just in terms of length, but in terms of influence. But if you look at someone like Isaiah, it gets even more complex because there are three Isaiahs. You know, would the real Isaiah put his hand up, please? Chapter 1 to 39 is, is first Isaiah, we, we say, who prophesied in the early 8th century in Jerusalem. Second Isaiah is a quite different kind of prophet and poet and he was a prophet during the time of the exile 587 BC to 537 BC keep the exile in mind firm etch it on your, your brain it's the seminal event the cataclysm that generated the Old Testament as we have it the catastrophe so second Isaiah chapters 40 to 55 from whom we heard tonight is a prophetic voice raised up at the time of the exile when the whole show seemed to collapse. Third Isaiah, chapter 56 to 66, comes in the period after the return to Jerusalem when they faced a seemingly impossible and depressing task of rebuilding the city and the temple. Now, so three Isaiahs, and you'll say, well, that's fraudulent. Second and third Isaiah claiming to be, to be Isaiah. But no, see, what we're talking about is a tradition of prophetic utterance. They have their roots in the oracles of first Isaiah, but that, that tradition of prophetic utterance continues down through the centuries. It's like Francis of Assisi. Francis of Assisi brings to, to birth a kind of prophetic witness in the, the life of the church 800 years ago. 
and we still have Franciscans who actually wear the, the, uh, the dress, or something like the dress, that Francis wore. So they continue the tradition of, of evangelical or prophetic witness that, that has its roots in Francis of Assisi. You'll find the same in the New Testament, because St Paul didn't write all the letters that we call the letters of Paul. But those who wrote those later letters absolutely believed they were continuing the tradition of apostolic preaching that went back to St Paul. I hope that's clear. We have a, we have a much more highly individualised understanding of authorship than the Bible ever had. Uh, so those who wrote in the tradition of Isaiah or those who wrote in the tradition of Paul didn't want you to know who they were. They submerged their own identity, their own individuality, so that you could still hear the voice of Paul or the voice of Isaiah continuing through the centuries, albeit modulated differently. It's like when the Pope speaks sometimes, we say, this is Peter who speaks. And you say, no, it's not, that's Francis. But that's not the point. The point is, the, the voice of Peter isn't something once upon a time. Peter's voice still sounds in the church and in the world through the Pope, who happens to bear the, the, the name Francis in baptism, George. So it's the same kind of point. A different understanding of what is past. The past is never past in the scripture. It's always here and now. So, the major prophets and the minor prophets. Now, I said Daniel is not really a major prophet at all. But some of those who are called um, minor prophets are unquestionably major in their influence, if not in the length of the book that, is, that bears their name. Classic case is Hosea. Hosea is called a minor prophet, but he is major in his influence because he's the, pro the prophetic progenitor of Jeremiah. Without Hosea, we don't get Jeremiah. So that alone would be enough to say that Hosea is a major prophet in terms of influence, if not the length of the text. So the whole thing's a bit messier than it seems. In the Jewish Bible, which they call the Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, the law, the Torah, the Nevi'im are the prophets, the great central section of the Jewish Bible, the, the Old Testament, and then the writings. What they mean when they talk about the end, Tanakh, the Nevi'im, the prophets, is that great swathe of the Bible that begins with the book of Joshua and goes right down to the end of the prophetic books. And it includes what they call the Deuteronomic history. Now stick with me, don't get put off by the language. There's a narrative, a single narrative arc in the Old Testament that runs from the book of Joshua to the second book of Kings. The book of Joshua talks about the entry into the promised land and the second book of Kings at the end tells the story of the expulsion from the promised land, the exile. So this great ark going into the promised land and being dragged out of the promised land. And the question that is posed in the telling of the tale is why did the catastrophe happen? And the answer that's given in the telling of the tale is the answer of the prophets. The exile happened because of sin and the only way home then is to deal with sin because its effect is always a kind of exile 
So from Joshua to two kings, you get the, the prophetic answer to the great question, why did the catastrophe of the exile happen? And then you have the prophetic books. So that whole central section from Joshua down to the prophet Malachi is what they call the, the Nuvim, the, the prophets in the Jewish Bible, which we call the Old Testament. All of that having been said, the question is, what was distinctive about prophecy in ancient Israel? You see, because every culture of the ancient Near East had prophets. It wasn't just Israel. They all had prophets, but prophecy acquires a different profile from culture to culture. So the question is, what was the distinctive profile of prophecy in ancient Israel? To begin answering the question, you have to look at the rise of the monarchy in ancient Israel. Now, why did we get the kings? The answer was that Israel, having entered into and settled in the promised land, found themselves surrounded by a potent enemy called the Philistines, who had the latest in high-tech technology, steel weapons, iron weapons. So here they were supposedly in the promised land, having made it, after 40 years in the wilderness, and they're surrounded by an enemy who was so much more sophisticated and potent than, than they were. They needed a new kind of political and military unity to meet a new kind of threat, the Philistines, a people who had migrated at about the time of the Exodus from, it seems, the islands in the Mediterranean because of some catastrophe there. They came to what we know as, as the Holy Land, around Gaza in fact, and they settled there and they were a very sophisticated people compared to the, the, the rude tribes of ancient Israel. So the people say, we want a king to unify us and to lead us in battle. Uh, and the corollary of that was, we want a king because we want to be like all the other people. And the prophet Samuel, who was a kind of tr transition figure, Samuel says, you can't have a king because you've got a king already. Who is your king? God. So in other words, what Samuel says, if you ask for a king you are in fact undermining the kingship of God who is our only king in this counter-society of God, the community of slaves set free. And if you get a king, the kind of king you want, he'll end up being just like Pharaoh, he will take you back to Egypt. And you can read all of this in the first book of Samuel, chapters 8 to 12. It's a fascinating story. Eventually Samuel goes to God and says, well listen, what am I supposed to say to the people? And God eventually says, give them a king, but on one condition. That that king is as much subject to the law of God as anyone else in the community. You see, because in the ancient Near East, the world that gave us the Bible, the king was the source of the law. In Egypt, the king was regarded as divine. Pharaoh was God. In Mesopotamia... The great empires there, the law was put on the lips of the king. In Israel, that is not so. The law is from God through Moses and everyone, including the king, is as much subject of the law as the next person.
The king is just one of his brothers and sisters. He is another slave set free. So there's to be a kind of a a counter sense of the king. However, increasingly the kings began to act and look like Pharaoh. And that's when you get the prophets in ancient Israel. The prophets from Elijah onwards invariably are eyeballing the king and saying that you are putting yourself above the people and you are playing God. Therefore you are taking the people back to Egypt. Instead of presiding over the community of slaves set free, you are in fact leading them into a new form of slavery. Well, you can imagine how the king's like that. So Ahab and his, his, his queen Jezebel, who was, uh, she was something else, uh, they, they want Elijah's blood. So as the star of the monarchy rises in ancient Israel, so too does the star of, of the prophetic movement. But the task of the prophets is to, to defend at all costs the God-given identity of ancient Israel as that community of slaves set free. In other words, to ensure that Israel is in fact the counter-society of God, as God intends. In that sense, the prophets are law men and law women. They defend God's law against the encroachments of the kings and indeed the queens. And they pay a huge price. I mean, Jeremiah, they're after his blood. Elijah, they're after his blood. And you see, the false prophets did very well. The false prophets went around telling people exactly what they wanted to hear. Shalom, shalom, shalom. Everything's fine, don't worry. And the the false prophets did very well. The true prophets, uh, they copped it sweet. They paid a high price. Now, the question of who was a true prophet and who was a false prophet was one that haunted ancient Israel. And eventually what they came to see was that one of the criteria for a true prophet was not success but persecution. Jeremiah was the key figure in this. See, how are we to know whether a prophet was true or false? You could say, well, if his prophecies came true, but how long are you supposed to wait so this was a question that haunted the, the, the um, ancient Israel. How are we to know who is a true prophet? And in the end, over time, they come to say that the true prophet is one who, who as it were, sheds his blood, is persecuted because of the word he speaks. Up until the exile, that's the function of the prophets. For all their differences, they are the defenders of God's law. God's law understood as the charter of of a new freedom in this community of slaves set free. And that's why they're constantly at the kings and the queens. When the exile comes, the function of prophecy in a sense changes. 
And you see this in someone like Second Isaiah, whose words we heard this evening. Because the exile, as I have said, was, it seemed to be the collapse of the whole thing. It seemed to be utterly hopeless. The task of the prophets in that situation was to, to, to lift the hopes of the people, say to them that things are not hopeless, that there is a future, that God hasn't abandoned us. God will lead us back to the promised land and back to the holy city, which will be rebuilt. So in, in Second Isaiah, who is the great prophetic voice of this period of the exile, you have these huge poetic visions and great poetic tapestries of this majestic procession through the desert and the desert turns into a garden and springs in the desert and jonquils bloom there and so on. And all of this is a vision of, of the return from Babylon, exile, to a homecoming, a triumphant homecoming. And he ha his vision is of the mountains bursting into song and the forests all uh, doing the same to welcome the exiles back, back home. So, but, but really what they're saying is there is a future. Because this was a theological crisis of the first order. In the ancient world, if your God beat my God in battle, that's what played itself out on the earthly battlefield. In other words, if Babylon beat me, Israel, on the battlefield, it was because I'd, my God lost the battle in heaven. So therefore, if, we, if the Babylonian god, Marduk, had shown himself more powerful than the god of ancient Israel, wouldn't you back the winner and go with Marduk, get with the strength? So it's a theological crisis as much as anything. Where is the god of Israel in the midst of all of this? collapse. And what you see the prophets doing is, is saying the other gods don't exist or they do exist but they're not gods. So at this time of exile Israel moves more and more to what we call monotheism. In other words there's only one god. The other gods exist but they're demoted. They, come, they sort of become uh, courtiers to a king. They're not in any way contenders. There is only one god and this one God is the God not just of Israel, not a tribal God, but a God of the whole earth. So it's only at this time of crisis, that was a crisis not just theological, but political and social and in every other way. But it's only at that time and under that pressure that Israel moves to what we would call monotheism. Before that, there, was, there tended to be the belief that other gods existed, but they, they weren't as powerful as the God of ancient Israel. Once Israel returns to the Holy Land and the Holy City, after the exile, when the Persian king comes into Babylon as a conquering monarch, and he says to the exiles, well, you can go home as far as I'm concerned. If you want to go back to Jerusalem, home you go. I don't want to keep you here against your will. Some went back to Jerusalem, some stayed in Babylon where they had done very well by the streams of Babylon. They were settled. Why would they go back? They're making a good living. Life in Babylon was better. The task that faced them when they went back to Jerusalem was, was depressing. 
disheartening. So they stayed. But those who did go back found a city in ruins and at the heart of it a temple that was in ruins where the jackals prowl and the owl is heard. Again, the poetry of return is very potent. The task of the prophets in that situation was again to lift the spirits and to say, come on. The task may seem undoable, but you can do it. So, so it's, it, it's a high vision for low morale. But, but through it all, with these different modulations, before the exile, during the exile, and after the exile, what they are all about is sustaining this community of slaves set free as a great witness to hope in, in the world that they knew. And the hope was ultimately that freedom is possible in a world where, again, the logic of Pharaoh tends to prevail, where freedom is an illusion or a mirage. Now, this is true in our world too. It, it, to be a prophetic people in a, in a very different world, a very different age, whatever about the world that the Bible knew, it was not secular. It was a profoundly religious world. As many parts of the world are still, you go to places like India or Africa, religion is the air you breathe in those places, not here. But whether you're in a deeply religious culture or a culture like ours which is deeply secularised, the prophetic task is in the end a defence of freedom or a proclamation of the possibility of a genuine freedom and that vision then nourishing a genuine hope, not a cosmetic hope, that does not satisfy the human heart. So a genuine hope in the midst of the many false hopes that fly around, of a genuine freedom in the midst of all the false freedoms that fly around and which end up being new forms of slavery. Again, you know what I'm saying, that there are many, many freedoms are proposed that only end up being new forms of slavery, but they're all what, what the Bible talks about is a genuine freedom and a genuine hope for that freedom. So living biblically in a secular age is, is in fact to witness to that hope and to live that freedom or at least towards it as a genuine possibility. It's also what it means to be prophetic. In the end I see no difference between living biblically and living prophetically. Keeping in mind that the word prophet itself means a spokesperson. In other words, uttering a word that is not ours. See again, we cannot generate for ourselves this genuine hope for a genuine freedom. It has to come from somewhere else. And what the, what the scripture insists is it can only come from God. That's what the real God is. Again, I go back to the first and only commandment in the scripture. At the head of the 613, here I revisit something I said in, in one of the earlier sessions. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you forth from the land of Egypt, from the house of slavery. No other gods before me. Well, so that's what God is. God is a genuine hope, not cosmetic, for a genuine freedom, not illusory. So, so to, to witness to that is to live biblically in a secular age which often talks about hope as a mirage and freedom likewise. And a culture where there are so many forms of, of so many new forms of slavery which have been presented as, as liberations. Think of the great atheistic ideologies of the, of the 20th century and the millions of corpses they left in their wake. I mean fascism and communism. Both liberation myths proclaiming freedom and hope and they led to the exact opposite. That's what I'm talking about. In such a world, to stand as a counter-society that does live biblically, live prophetically, precisely because we have received the gift of a genuine hope for a genuine freedom in the midst of all the slaveries that lay, lay claim to us. At this point, I want to make the great leap into the New Testament. But the leap that can seem so great from the world of the Old Testament that I have been reflecting upon through the sessions until now, the leap is not as great as it may seem. The New Testament is radically different from the Old. We call them both Testaments, but they're in no way equivalent. Even if you look in terms of bulk, there is the Old Testament. There is the New, which looks positively puny by comparison. The Old Testament took about a thousand years to compile. The oldest texts, which are probably some of the poetic texts in the book of Exodus, would date to about 1200 BC. Now that sounds very old to us, but just keep in mind that by 1200 BC, Egypt had risen and fallen any number of times, through thousands of years. But 1200 is the earliest text. The latest texts in the Old Testament are possibly about 200. It's hard to be precise. But in the New Testament, the earliest texts are probably the late 40s and the latest texts are 100. So the Old Testament, about 1,000 years. Uh, the New Testament, not much more than 50 so that what is the New Testament is the question. Well, in many ways, it's simply a, a how to read the old. It's a prism, basically the prism of the encounter with the risen Christ, crucified and risen, that if you look at the Old Testament through that prism that he is, then you read everything differently. So in many ways, the, the New Testament 
which is a proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified and risen, is how to read the Old Testament. It unlocks the Old Testament. So when you had someone like Marcion in the early church saying, let's get rid of the Old Testament, because the God of the Old Testament is a, is a demiurge, an evil power. And the God of the New Testament is, is completely different and opposed to the, the, the evil, dark, angry, violent demiurge of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament's all about law and the New Testament is all about grace. All of that is seriously skewed. Uh, The God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. Marcion was dead wrong. Uh, There is no opposition between law and grace. Both Old and New Testament uh, have law and grace dripping from them. We think of law, for instance, as a kind of a a straitjacket, a necessary evil to restrain wayward human passions and to protect fragile human rights. That's not the way the scripture, or Judaism today, understands the law. The law is God's great gift. It's a royal road leading out of Egypt, leading us into a genuine freedom. It's a proclamation of hope. In other words, the law is grace. And if you had said to Paul, is there an opposition between the Torah, the law, and God's grace? He wouldn't have even understood the question. Similarly, if you asked Paul the question, just before you get your head chopped off, Paul, one last question. Are you a Jew or a Christian? Paul wouldn't have understood the question. If he had, I guess he would have said, well, I'm both. There was no opposition so again, we, just, we as, 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 as Western Christians need to beware of these false oppositions that do not serve us well. The, 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 the profound continuities between Old and New Testament are far more important than any discontinuities is the point that needs to be made. Now, The key figure that I want to turn to now as the link between the Old and the New Testament is the prophet Jeremiah. And I do so because he was an absolutely key figure for St. Paul in interpreting his bewildering experience of call and mission. In fact, Brother Neville read the very passage from one of St Paul's letters, one he undoubtedly dictated, just by the way, not one of those later letters that might have been written or dictated by others, speaking in his tradition, but in the letter to the Galatians, uh, we, we read this in the first chapter. When he who had set me apart before I was born and had called me through his grace. It's almost a verbatim quote from the words that Brother Neville read, the call of Jeremiah. See, see, Paul, Paul didn't know how to make sense of his whole experience of call and mission. Because one of the constants in his mission was persecution. And some of his opponents, and he had plenty of them, to whom I shall turn 
when the time comes. But his opponents were saying, you're a fraud. And, and the, the fact that you're, you're being persecuted is a sign that God is not with you. Paul was accused of fraudulence time and time again, almost of the day he got his head chopped off. Paul then reaches back into the only scripture he knew, which is what we call the Old Testament, and he latches onto the figure of Jeremiah. I think in part because he was attracted to Jeremiah temperamentally. Jeremiah is the most tender and the most terrible of all the prophets. That strange combination that you find there. But you see the same in Paul. Paul, Paul can, be, uh, can rise to heights of lyrical tenderness unmatched in the New Testament. But put, there's a dark and terrible and stormy side to Paul, which is what, why a lot of people don't seem to like him. That's only because they don't know him. So I think temperamentally he was drawn to Jeremiah, but also he found in Jeremiah someone who could interpret his own experience of suffering and rejection, persecution. Just as in Jeremiah's case it proved that he was the real thing, a real prophet, so Paul says, in my case... It proves I'm in fact a, a genuine apostle and, and, and a, a, an heir to the great prophetic traditions of ancient Israel. Paul, I think, would have seen himself as in some sense a new prophet, one who was speaking a word not his own. So I begin to reflect upon that part of the Christian Bible that we call the New Testament by turning to the figure of Paul. Now you might say to me, ah, but in fact why don't we start with the Gospel of Matthew because that's where the New Testament starts. That is true. But in the Bible generally you have to understand the tension between theology and chronology. The Bible as it's, as it's now arranged in its order, the canon as we call it, the particular ordering of the texts, is organised according to theological principles and not chronological principles. In other words, the book of Genesis, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, is by no means the, the first text of, of the Old Testament that was written. It comes a lot later than the earlier texts. So it, it, theologically it's, it's prior, but chronologically it's not. Similarly, the Gospel of Matthew, which begins the New Testament, probably was written sometime in the 80s of the first century, after the catastrophe of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70. Keep that in mind too, the destruction. It's the second catastrophe that generates the Christian Bible. First is the exile, second is the destruction of, the, of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70. Um, So Matthew is, is, is about the 80s, same time as Luke. The earliest texts of the New Testament are unquestionably some of, the Paul, Paul's, some of Paul's letters. Probably the earliest text in the New Testament is 1 Thessalonians. Might have been written about 48 or 49. But you see, a lot has happened in Christianity before pen is put to paper, as it were. I mean, if Jesus Christ dies and rises, let's say sometime in the 30s, who knows, but sometime in the 30s, 
it's about it's it's the best part of 20 years before we get the first of the texts that finds its way into the Bible, the New Testament. I mean, was nothing happening in that first 15 or 20 years? It was a tumultuous time when Christianity was coming to birth. And the key figure in that process of Christianity being born from the womb of the synagogue was unquestionably the figure we know know as Paul, whose Semitic name was Shaul. Paul was not a name that he took once he was knocked down on the road to Damascus. Paul would have been the the name that he was known as from, from probably quite a young age because his Semitic name, Shaul, would have been difficult and odd in the the world that he knew in Tarsus. Paul didn't grow up in a Jewish environment. He was part of what's called the diaspora, the scattering of Judaism. He grew up in what's called the Hellenistic world. Now in that kind of world, the Semitic name Shaul would have been odd and difficult. So therefore he takes, for day-to-day use, he he, he adopts one of the most common names in the Greco-Roman world, Paulus. Um, so who was he? Who was he? And why, is, why are, are, are there people who even say it was Paul who founded Christianity? Um, he was born in Tarsus, which was an important academic centre. He was clearly educated to the highest level and was a man at home in, in two cultures. Jewish culture, but you can see from his, um, the intellectual strength of, of his, his texts, and also the Greek that he writes, which is not perfect Greek, but it's good Greek. Some of the Greek in the, in the New Testament is appalling, clearly written by people for whom Greek was a second or third language. It's school, the Gospel of John, for instance, is theologically profound, but it's schoolboy Greek. Whoever wrote the Gospel of John, his mother tongue was certainly not Greek. It's like me when I write Italian. I can speak quite good Italian. I write it appallingly because I never learnt it formally. So if I write uh, a text in Italian, it turns out to be at best schoolboy Italian. That's the kind of thing you often find in the New Testament, but not so with Paul. It's, it's, it's highly likely in my own reading of, of um, Paul's biography that he was sent at a young age to do rabbinic or pharisaic studies in Jerusalem. That was not uncommon, to be sent from his Tarsus in what is southern Turkey now to Jerusalem, he might have stayed with relatives, that was often enough done. This was with gifted boys and they would do their religious studies, their, their rabbinic or pharisaic studies uh, from a young age in the holy city. It's possible that through that time and as he, he, he grows older, that he, he may have heard of Jesus. I don't think there's anything in his letters that suggests that he ever met Jesus personally. Never. 
In fact, if all we had were the letters of Paul, what would we know about Jesus? We'd know that he's born of a woman. Well, that's not big news. We would certainly know that he was crucified and that he rose from the dead. But anything else about the historical Jesus would be unknown to us. Reading through his text, you don't have the sense that he ever met Jesus personally in the way, say, Peter and John and the Twelve did. What seems to be certain, although it is puzzling, is that at some point he was persecuting the Christians. Now, we have almost no record, contemporary record of intra-Jewish persecution. But we have to take Paul's word. This is where, again, the sources of the first century can be frustratingly silent. Now, why, why was he persecuting the Christians? There's no answer to the question, but one can surmise. So let me surmise. I think he had heard of Jesus and had heard the claims of early Christianity. And they somehow reached deep into his being at a time of perhaps considerable uncertainty and frustration in his own life. I think he talks autobiographically about this sort of thing in the early chapters of Romans. Where in chapter 7 of Romans he, he eventually cries out in a kind of cosmic frustration, who will deliver me from this body doomed to death? See, as a Pharisee, a devout Jew, the thing that Paul sought most passionately and, and persistently through life was freedom. That's what Judaism's about. But, but he, the cry of frustration is, I, I search for an ultimate freedom and I can't find it. Who will deliver me from this body doomed to death? In other words, who will give me an ultimate freedom? He answers his own question in the very next verse. Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, Paul the Pharisee, when he does eventually encounter Jesus Christ crucified and risen, finds the one in whom at last a genuine and ultimate freedom is offered. But, but this... Even hearing about Jesus, even before the Damascus Road encounter, it was as if this sense that the foundations of his religious cosmos were shaking. And sometimes that kind of experience, if I feel the foundations are shaking, it can be very threatening. It can seem to be, as it were, violating my religious cosmos. And in that situation I can reach out to strike against now, in the midst of all of that comes the encounter, the Damascus Road encounter, which becomes the womb of everything that follows in Paul's life until he gets his head chopped off. Where the, 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 the powerful persecutor is stripped of power, and that, for, that foreshadows what will come in Paul's life, because Paul is more and more stripped of anything that looks like power, 
But what he comes to see is the more he is stripped of one kind of power, the more he is empowered in other ways. See, finally, he lies as that most powerless of things, a human corpse. The only thing it can do is putrefy. So Paul's death had a logic about it. It was a final powerlessness. But his martyrdom, the death, became the great empowerment that ensured that Paul's voice and witness would, would resound down through the ages till the end of time and beyond. The words that he heard on the road to Damascus are strange and crucial words. He, heard, he hears the voice of Christ who's he's been knocked down he can't see and the voice says to him Saul, Saul. Yet the use of the name suggests that Jesus has been keeping an eye on him. Why are you persecuting me? Well, Paul at that point would have been entitled to say, excuse me, I'm not persecuting you, I'm persecuting them, the Christians. But what's the force of the words placed on the lips of Christ in that story in Acts chapter 9? Jesus says, if you persecute my followers, you persecute me. What you get then is a kind of an identification of Jesus and the church which will lead Paul eventually and in fact fairly quickly to that most extraordinary description of the church that came so early from Paul, the description of the church as the body of Christ. I mean we take it for granted because we've been hearing it for 2,000 years. Paul thought of it and the sheer radicality and originality of that description of the church I find breathtaking. These were small communities around the Mediterranean basin and here he is talking about these communities as the body of Christ, that which enables Christ to communicate in the world, just as I'm, I couldn't communicate to you now without my body. And I think, in fact, that extraordinary description of the church goes back to that, that encounter. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus is the church and the church is Jesus. Now, these are dangerous things to say and they can be misunderstood. It can lead to a kind of idolisation of the church. But rightly understood, there you have the truth of the church and you have it from the lips of someone who is writing at the very dawn of Christianity and someone who if he wasn't the founder of Christianity and he certainly wasn't even though some would claim that he was he was the midwife I think who enabled the church he was, he was the prime force that enabled the church to leave rural Palestine and take root in the, Medi the cities of the Mediterranean basin. Keeping in mind that Christianity began as a rural phenomenon. But once it leaves Palestine, it takes root in the, in the great urban centres of the Mediterranean world. And in that process, there is no question that the key figure was Paul. Paul. 
Now, in teaching courses of, on, on St Paul over the years, the subtitle I have given the course is Why the Loser Won? And I, I conclude with this tonight and it's where I'll resume next time. Why the loser won to many, many people in his own time. Paul was not only controversial, he would have seemed a serious loser. He lost the argument, he lost the battle. Even if he would never accept the fact that he'd lost, he was a loser. And yet the impression when you open the New Testament is that he is a triumphant winner. And you go to Rome and there is the great basilica that stands over the tomb of St Paul's. It's like St Peter's Basilica over the tomb of Peter. It's just one big tombstone. Similarly, St Paul's outside the walls is just one big tombstone over St Paul's tomb. And the grandeur of the building is only one way of showing forth the grandeur of their witness as martyrs. Uh, but when you, when you walk into St Paul's outside the walls, which I'm sure many of you have done, there you see the heroic statue of the, of the, of the Apostle, when the inscription, Ave Doctor Gentium, Hail Teacher of the Nations, it's heroic. And you think, now there is a winner. Not in his own time. Why did he win? Because in the end, Paul was right. It always helps to be right. He might have swum against the tide, but he was right. And what was he right about? He was right about the church. Uh, I come back again to the body of Christ and, and the implications of, of that description of the church. But, but how and why Paul was right about the church is where we shall resume the reflection when we return to its unfolding in one month's time. Thank you very much for this evening.